0: Uh, welcome to the podcast I'm here today with my friend Chris Nicholson um, we're recording this uh, and this matters for the something is, you know this war that's Uh, sometimes has some very quick developments. Uh, We're recording this on November 14th, uh, 2022 at around 6.30 Eastern time. Uh, And today we're going to talk about um, just the recent developments. Um, Recently we had the uh, uh, Russian withdrawal from Kherson. And then we're going to spend, I think, a lot of time talking about how this war is going to end and the potential outcomes, sort of a timescale that we're looking at. Uh, So Chris, uh, the uh, Russians have retweeted uh, from Kherson that's the big news can you just tell us you know your view of what happened here and what's going on elsewhere on the front
1: sure so i'm still trying to figure out what exactly happened the fog of war has been very heavy around the Kherson region for the last month or so and it's just beginning to lift now what i can say is that things aren't adding up what Mm -hmm. has happened is not what ukraine told us was going to happen basically uh what what's going on rewind a few weeks Rumors started to come out that Russia was beginning to withdraw. And then at every step of the way over the last couple of weeks, Ukraine has responded saying, no, that's false. We don't see any evidence of Russia withdrawing. In fact, we see evidence of them reinforcing, sending more mobilized men in. Uh, we think this is a trap. That's why we're not going to advance. We're going to go very slow. And it's going to be, there's still twenty to 30,000, maybe even 40,000 Russians on the West Bank of the river, and it's going to be a hard, months-long battle, maybe urban warfare for the city. And talking today, it seems clear that none of that was ended up being true. That's not how things, in fact, went down. In fact, uh, it seems that within a matter of days after Russia made the official announcement that it was going to withdraw, Ukraine had all this territory. And it didn't actually seem like there was that much fighting. And it doesn't seem like there's that much mopping up mopping up action going on right now so i'm left with two main options to consider option number one is that russia successfully fooled ukraine that russia somehow deceived ukraine into thinking that russia was not withdrawing and was reinforcing when in fact it was withdrawing and and we do there are some stories starting to come out of stuff like Ukrainians discovering mannequins in, in the city of Kurzon. Uh Mannequins just standing around as, as troops? Sorry?
0: Mannequins just like pretending to be soldiers? Yeah. yeah. They would need a lot of mannequins, right? So they they would would. Like, that would be a, a sophisticated, mm-hmm. there would have to be a satellite photo that can see the, see the mannequins, but not there good is. enough to see that they're not real.
1: It's pretty hard for me to believe that Russia successfully deceived Ukraine and all of Western intelligence on such a large scale, which leads me to favor option number two, which is that Russia wasn't deceiving Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia together were deceiving us, were deceiving the public, leading us to expect that there would be this big, long slog, this this slugfest over Kherson, when in fact, maybe the two sides had negotiated and agreed on a withdrawal where Ukraine perhaps would allow Russia to withdraw in good order, and in return, uh, it would preserve the city for, from devastation, and it would save it uh, the urban warfare, which, which would have, you know, potentially raised it, much of it to the ground. I, I think that's what's looking more likely at this point
0: so you think so each so what what each side gets ukraine gets to take over the city without fighting and then russia gets its uh because they know they both sides know the out what the outcome is going to be russia gets to preserve its uh troops and equipment but so it makes sense i guess for for russia i mean for ukraine um if they have a chance to destroy you know to kill a lot of russians and then also uh seize a lot of equipment what not they just want to do that instead of making a deal
1: from a pure military's perspective. I think yes but it may be that uh, the interests of the civilians that that made Ukraine potentially take some kind of deal like this where they they didn't want the civilians to to suffer they didn't want the city to be burned to the ground basically uh the, the main benefit to Ukraine would would be sparing the civilians mm-hmm. okay so I guess that makes sense in in your in your view
0: would this be sort of a a sign of a broader deal or do you think it's just limited to kursan
1: i don't think there's any reason to suspect if there was a deal that it was broader and another thing to add here we had all those reports over the last couple weeks of russia evacuating civilians from kursan uh i've seen the theory bandied about and it sounds plausible that maybe some of those civilians were being used as shields for soldiers that were being evacuated Mm. Uh, i mean honestly that's the way I would do it if I were Russia. That, mm. That's how you can be sure you can get your soldiers out without them being bombed the entire way. Right. So we are getting some reports of, we see some signs of, of Russian losses in this withdrawal, reports of, you know, a few dead Russians washing up on the riverbank, uh, you know, isolated captures here and there of an S-300 system of uh, some fancy artillery here and there. but. I think so far, we have reason to believe that the Russians did withdraw in pretty good order, and they did not suffer massive losses in men or material, the same way they did in the Kargil counteroffensive. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see what information comes out. We may not know the full story for a long time, but what we can say with certainty is that this quick takeover of Kursan and this quick withdrawal that is not at all consistent with what ukraine had been telling us over the last mm-hmm. several weeks
0: right um okay and um okay so that's 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 the uh, kherson region um and so what's what else is there anything else that's worth noting uh, about what's going on on the field on the uh, battle yeah.
1: so st- sticking with this region for a bit couple hmm. things so first uh there are, at we well,
0: have maps, by the way, here for people who are just listening on the podcast. So the the video, you if you want to watch the video, you could see all this. But yeah, go ahead, Chris.
1: So first of all, there have been a, a lot of reports, rumors that are becoming steadily uh, more more real. Uh, I mean, Forbes just said it recently of uh, reports of Ukrainian special operations forces uh, being active right here uh, on what's called the Kinburn Spit. Uh, to the south of of Kherson, across the river, and so that's interesting. Uh, there, I saw some videos that purported mm. to be Ukrainian special ops guys on inflatable boats crossing over to this region. Uh, and there are more rumors; these ones less substantiated, but there are rumors of Ukrainians taking a couple towns across uh, the Dnieper River, uh, which would be shocking to me. I don't think that you, I think that probably in a day or two, we'll probably realize that Ukraine has not in fact been taking a town or two across the river, but that, those kinds of rumors are caused oftentimes by special operations activity. You know, a raid on a town can easily be transformed by rumor into taking over a town. Mm. So I think that probably what's happened is, is that the Ukrainians have taken a little bit of territory. Uh, On the Kinburn Spit, and that has some strategic value that we should talk about. And -hmm. they're kind of creating a little beachhead here and using that to launch special operations raids uh, into Russian territory.
0: Yeah. So, so talk about talk about the um, strategic significance of what 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 is it called the Kinburn? What did you say about the Kinburn Spit? Kinburn Spit. Okay. What's what's this? uh, What's the? um, And for those who are not watching, it's like a little. Thing that's jutting out uh, at the sort of into the Black Sea, uh, south of Kherson,
1: a, a little peninsula. And mm-hmm. so the significance of it is that it's going to be very hard for the Ukrainians to cross the Dnieper River th- mm-hmm. to try and continue this advance. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's it's probably not going to happen. The Russians have been building up several defensive lines behind uh, the east bank of the river for for quite a while now, and. So, for the most part, I think what we're going to see is the Ukrainians are not really going to advance. The river will be a good barrier. And I think that both the Russians and the Ukrainians are recognizing that fact. And they're both rapidly uh, diverting their forces away from this region to go fight on other fronts, which we'll Mm -hmm. talk about. But I think what's going on here, this activity on the Kinburn Spit, the Russians have been building all these defenses. Along the north of that, on, along mm. the Dnieper River. Mm. I think basically the Ukrainians mm. are seizing this opportunity to establish a little beachhead here because you, uh, Russia has not been constructing defenses from this region. So if you, Ukrainian has a little beachhead here, it can launch raids, it can potentially land more guys. Uh, the Russians don't have strong defenses here yeah, and so what this does is it gives the Ukrainians an opportunity to flank the Russians. The Russians have to respect that threat. And so I think the main goal is for the Ukrainians to keep harassing the Russians to force them to to locate defenders here instead of moving them to where the new fighting's about to start
0: and this this uh this spit uh, down here, are there roads? I mean, are there roads that take you there from up to northeast where you where you'd want to go?
1: Uh, I think this region, I think there's a lot of swamp here. You yeah, can so, see it, it calls it the Black Sea Biosphere Reserve. I, I think this region is very swampy, uh, which means that it's going to be hard for the Russians to dislodge the Ukrainians. But it's hard, also
0: hard for the Ukrainians to make it offensive,
1: right? Well... It's going to be easy for them to to get here. It, it may be hard for them to to move a lot of equipment. Yeah, I, I don't think this is the kind of region where there are a lot of roads, so you, you probably can't be launched uh, taking a lot of armor through here. Uh, by the way, it's been easy for Ukraine to grab this region because uh, every bit of artillery Ukraine has is within range of it from the opposite shore. Uh-huh. So that's basically why I'm confident that Ukraine. There, there really is fire to the smoke behind these rumors. Ukraine probably does have guys, special ops guys, that have seized this land and are launching raids from it. Mm. And by the way, you can see all these explosions popping up here. You measure this distance from Ukrainian territory to, to where these explosions today are. Mm. This basically turns out to be High Mars-Gimler's range. Uh-huh. So this is pretty much what we would expect to see. And this is a theme that we'll kind of revisit throughout throughout today's podcast. Um, mm-hmm. What's going to happen in the war? Who's going to have to surrender what? Who's going to be able to win what? Basically, a lot of it traces down to what is within high Mars range. That's the yeah. short of it. Um, yeah. So since, since Ukraine has seized this territory, what we already begin to see happening is Russia is having to relocate all of its ammo depots and, and a lot of its you know command posts it's gotta relocate all of that out of high mars range and that's what these explosions are showing you
0: uh the, the fortifications that russia has on the east side of the river uh what are they i mean do you know what they look like and could high mars blow them up is that well possible? it's
1: just a series of trenches mostly
0: uh huh. and so there's so guys it's not
1: really a tempting target for high mars i mean yeah you can you can use you can use the M thirty A one, you know, tungsten pellet ammo to to get at some guys who are in those trenches. But yeah, you know, so they're in the trenches. we're not going to see. I don't think that we're going to see Ukraine crossing the river in any force. I think mm-hmm. the front line will be pretty much frozen here for the duration.
0: Yeah, but coming up from that, coming up from that swamp for a large scale sort of a attack that doesn't sound very likely either. It sounds like it first- doesn't.
1: Yeah. It doesn't. So I think that this is mainly going to be a location where Ukraine lands special ops forces to filter out in small teams and launch raids into this Russian territory.
0: Yeah, but raids to what? Raids to what end? I mean, if they're, they're uh, to, gonna, to harass they can...
1: them, and and potentially potentially, what Russia has to be on the lookout for is the raids here could potentially weaken fortifications, weaken defenses on the on along the Dnieper River, and if if Russia isn't careful. Then the defenses could be weakened enough that Ukraine could launch a a, a mass assault across the river. So, Mm. this is something that I think Russia can defend against. I don't think that the activity here will change the outcome of the war. I think ultimately the goal is for Ukraine to use a small amount of force here to force Russia to divert a relatively large amount of force to defend the region. Mm. I think that's the game, basically.
0: Okay. Um, okay, so that's that's the anything else on the Kherson front?
1: Uh, that's everything I had to say about there. Now, as to the question of what's going to happen next, well, basically, the front in this war, although still large, has shrunk significantly. Mm. You know, we can rule out this entire region of the front now. We're not going to see that much more activity besides that harassment I talked about. Uh-huh. And so now, all the action. Wait, what?
0: I'm sorry. One more thing. Look, so you, uh, Ukraine is on the east side of the uh, Nipper. Why don't they attack, can they attack, like, uh, you can't see my finger, but can't they attack south from this sort of, the east side of the river and then get to uh, this uh, flank them?
1: Attack south from where?
0: So, like, okay, so uh, you see that, uh, no, no, uh, zoom out a little bit. Zoom out to where we, we were before. Okay, so you see, like, uh, you see, the say, the city uh, uh or, or do you see Orchiv? Yep. Okay. So why can't it go that way? So it's already got. There's already a. There's already Ukraine on the east side of the Dnieper. All it has to do is go south and southeast. It can. It can, That could be another front, right? That's that's a. That's just another front. That's, sure. that's uh, uh, this, this could, is yeah.
1: this is kind of the big question because uh-huh. there aren't that many areas where the fighting can go next. So mm-hmm. there's kind of I classify it as maybe three areas. In two of the areas, there's already fighting. Area one. Ukraine is on the offensive up in Svatova and Kremina in the Luhansk region. Mm. Area two, Russia continues to be attacking in the Donetsk region. Mm. Now, the third region that's relevant now is the Zaporizhia region in the south. And here, Russia has been launching a few token attacks, uh, some more intense than others, but this has kind of been the least active region of the front. And Ukraine has been hinting at a possible offensive in the Zaporizhia region to to potentially go all the way to Mariupol. Uh-huh. And the question is just is is that threat going to materialize? Are going are they going to go there next? Yeah. Or are they gonna are they gonna send the extra reinforcements up to reinforce that counteroffensive in Luhansk? Are they going to send them to Donetsk? That is an open question. Uh but certainly you know there is a lot of strategic value to launching an offensive in Zaporizhia. I mean, look, if they if they manage to just cut, cut down all the way to to the sea in any of these regions, that would be devastating for Russia because like forget attacking this whole area, forget attacking the remaining territory Russia controls in the south. Yeah. If Ukraine just takes anything in here and holds it, then it can just choke all of this, completely starve it. And then Russia loses all of it. So that's just the strategic value. Of course, Russia knows that. And so its defenses are quite strong in this region. <clears throat> yeah. Has Russia in your mind
0: sort of given up any hope of taking new territory? Because it seems like it's it seems like there's not much talk of of that happening. Is, is that where we are?
1: It's a good question. I think Russia has not at all given up hope. Uh, I was actually reading the, a good bit of analysis on this uh, from the Institute for the Study of War in its update yesterday. And it reported this interesting theory. Uh, the, the new head Russian general, do you know how you say his name? What is it? Sorovican? Sorovican?
0: No, no, I don't know how to say it.
1: Okay, well, I'll, I'll say uh, uh The head head Russian general, new guy who was recently appointed, the theory they were saying was that he told Putin immediately that he wanted to withdraw from Kherson, mm. and that Putin basically struck a deal with him saying, I'll let you withdraw only if you attack and succeed in taking all of Donetsk. Okay. And that theory explains why for the past few weeks, Russia has been furiously launching attacks in Donetsk to, to no real success and, and a lot of losses. Ah, uh, the Institute for the Study of War was offering a theory that this is basically about politics, not yeah. about tactics. Right, uh, and they've the got a well, they've got
0: a ways to go for uh, Donetsk, don't they? They have to get the I see which is looks like I don't know how much how many miles that is, but it looks like a pretty. Well, are, are they making progress on the Donetsk front? They so they're launching something very
1: halting. I mean, nothing really worth mentioning. I mean, if, if you were to look at this map, it, it's basically the same as it looked several months ago. What is the
0: um, so what's the theory? Because the Ukrainians they cut off the Russian supply lines. What's the Russian theory for? I mean, Ukraine has manpower and has weapons and has men. What's the theory of how it could achieve a breakthrough? Here is it, is it the mobilization? Is it just getting the, enough manpower?
1: The mobilization plus uh, using the withdrawn troops from Kherson as to reinforce it this and so the institute for the study of war was offering the theory that basically uh the new general surovkin he was doing these premature attacks in donetsk to kind of assure putin that he was serious in his promise that he was really going to go on the offensive in donetsk like hey look we're doing it now we're already attacking we'll keep attacking
0: and this is important politically because we're you know putin uh, once Donetsk and Luhansk, at least I mean, at least Donetsk and Luhansk, probably, uh, to make this thing seem like it was worthwhile. while well, Kherson is just, I mean, it's stupid because they annexed all of them. Um, but you know, Kherson seems like less of a natural goal, uh, than, uh, than yes, uh, finishing the job in Donetsk, right?
1: Yeah. So I, I think Russia is just going to continue attacking here. And what's interesting is it's interesting. Every step of the way, how how much politics overrides tactics and strategy in this war, and, and I think that's true for both sides. Uh, there are many political considerations. Uh, for, for Russia, it's it's launching ineffective piecemeal attacks here, largely for political reasons, as kind of a military political compromise, and and because of that, it's been piecemeal rushing mobilized men in with little training, just throwing them into existing units uh, and sending them, you know, into the wood chip. Uh, And I think it's in Ukraine's interest to basically let that continue. That's why Ukraine, if Ukraine keeps the pressure up, that forces Russia to keep sending its mobilized guys in in a trickle before they're fully trained.
0: Yeah. That makes That makes sense.
1: Okay. Um, and how much progress is?
0: Uh, uh, you said they were ma- Ukraine was making some progress on the northern front. How much have they made
1: recently? Not that much, really. I mean, look, I, I think it's a kind of a similar situation to the Russian progress in Donetsk. I mean, it's it's pretty minimal. Uh, th- this line of control has not appreciably changed in the last couple of weeks. So was
0: Kherson like maybe the last major? I mean, could it be just now that the 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 lines are going to stabilize and Kherson was sort of like the last, you know, it was sort of sticking out because it was they had the supply problems. But everything else is sort of close to Russia. You know, they have the manpower. They have a smaller space. They're closer to Russia. maybe maybe they, maybe there's just no more advances?
1: That's an important question. Uh, and it's up for debate. i I think that there is one side that says, yeah, that this is basically, all the main major progress we're going to see for a while. Uh, and one strong voice, American voice on this side is, I think, General Milley, uh, the chairman of, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I think he was in the news recently saying that he thinks that Ukraine has made all the big advances it's going to make for a while. And so Milley is a strong voice uh, starting to publicly pressure Ukraine to come to the negotiating yeah do you take that at face value
0: I just see like they're playing good cop bad cop I don't think Millie goes out and says things on his own just his opinion I think they're it's part of a you know administration strategy
1: it's possible it's possible you know you know Mick are you saying Biden Biden has whispered to Millie hey you you go out there saying that you think Ukraine could negotiate, and then I'll sn- I'll smack you down in the news. I'll yeah, no. something something nothing, like nothing that. About I don't Ukraine think Ukraine without Ukraine. Yeah, I don't think the Joint Chief of Staffs you know
0: freewheels and goes on his own and just says whatever he thinks.
1: It, it is interesting that he seems at least publicly to be you know sticking out like a sore thumb, uh, and you know it, it, maybe you're right that that maybe he's under secret orders from Biden to play the bad cop here that would still suggest that Biden yeah. himself on some level might think that Ukraine has made all the major gains yeah. it's going to make
0: maybe i mean washington post to say you know they were saying that the uh biden administration was saying this because they wanted um you know they wanted uh they were telling ukraine to say this because they wanted uh ukraine to maintain that like the idea that they had the moral high ground in international politics uh so they wouldn't lose support right that was that's what the washington post is saying but even that is probably like that's something that you know the that's something that i think the biden administration would want to get into the washington post right so it's it's complicated it's like are they do they really want negotiations or do they not it's just it's just we don't know what they think or it seems like you know, we know what they want us to think, but we we can't be sure what they really do think.
1: Well, Ukraine has been saying some pretty uh, pretty confident things. You know, it's it's been kind of getting more and more hardline in its public positions as it's gained more momentum on the battlefield, saying stuff like "No negotiations, uh, not until Russia leaves every inch of Ukrainian soil, and we won't even do- negotiate with Putin. We'll only negotiate <laughs> with Putin's no. successor after you guys overthrow him." Yeah. And, and you know I, I think that that especially is one thing that the u.s has been pressuring ukraine to stop saying and i, I think the report recently came out that ukraine has agreed to stop saying that they're not going to negotiate until putin is overthrown mm. because that's um, kind of a pretty escalatory position to take
0: yeah okay so if there's if there's uh nothing else we want to say about the uh, recent stuff i we can just go ahead to the well, uh but okay. so
1: let's talk a bit more about about the actual question. like what we were just talking about was what the u s. thinks might yeah. develop in the future. Let's talk about just actually what what what's likely to develop over the next few months, okay? So in the last podcast we did, I talked about the muddy season and when that was and the importance of it. I was inaccurate in an important way. Uh, mm-hmm. I mentioned the muddy season that happens when winter turns into spring and the snow melts. But there's an earlier muddy, muddy season that we're in right now when mm. fall turns into winter. You can mm. get mud then too, when the snow is starting to accumulate, and, but it's not quite cold enough to be frozen. Uh, so we have been in the first muddy season for several weeks now. And that's one reason why uh, the front lines have seemed largely stuck both on the Ukrainian offensive and the Russian offensive. Mm. Uh, Winter is going to hit in its fullness in a few weeks. And I think that that is when we're actually going to see activity be stepped up. Winter is going to hit. The ground is going to be frozen. No more mud. And and that's when Ukraine is really hoping to, to make ground. And so here comes kind of the disagreement between the Ukrainians and people perhaps like Millie who seem to believe that that the situation might be frozen. Everybody knows that winter is going to be hard. It's gonna be hard fighting. Mm-hmm. But the Ukrainians believe that when conditions become tough for both sides, that will favor them more
0: because mm-hmm.
1: they think that they have the better soldiers and the better discipline and equipment. Mm-hmm. So so when when a great burden is imposed on both sides, that ends up giving a competitive advantage to decide yeah. with the more disciplined troops, which the Ukrainians believe is them,
0: uh-huh.
1: and so they're they're really going to be probably becoming more active. I would expect they're going to throw a lot of their forces into the Luhansk counteroffensive uh, and try to make some significant movement when winter hits in a couple of weeks and the ground is frozen and easier to move over. Another factor is night vision. Uh, I think in I, I read that. In the height of summer, there's about 16 hours of the day where the sun's shining. And then Mm. in the depths of winter, there's Mm. only nine hours a day of, Mm. of sunlight. So night vision becomes important. The Russians have basically no night vision equipment, almost none worth speaking of. The Ukrainians have somewhat more and have the potential to be supplied more by the West. So more disciplined troops caused by a stronger, better NCO corps. That's one thing we haven't talked about in all of our podcasts. Uh, Ever since the initial Russian invasion in 2014, one of the main ways that the West has been helping Ukraine is by training their NCOs, their non-commissioned officers. Uh, And basically, it's well known that the NCO Corps is the backbone of an army. Uh, They're the sergeants, the ones who actually basically lead the individual squads and patrols of troops. Uh, and so in a Western NATO-style army like Ukraine possesses, it has much stronger, more experienced NCOs that are more comfortable taking the initiative. Uh, the Russian military structure really lacks that, and so they're led from the top down. And so that's one reason why Ukraine believes that Winter will favor it. Why does it Russia
0: have a night, uh, night vision because you know, up north, if they were going to fight a war against the Baltics or Finland or something, I mean, it seems like this is something they would need, right? Or, or Ukraine, apparently.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I'm sure they've got some. I mean, I'm sure that the Russian Spetsnaz has all the best stuff. But I mean, if you just look at how their mobilized men are being equipped, they're uh-huh. not even given the basic stuff. You know, uh-huh. they're, they're barely given uniforms. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're not getting fancy stuff like night vision.
0: Uh huh. Okay. So we're going to find out, I guess, in a couple of weeks, once this mud turns into uh, frozen ground, uh, we're going to find out whether Mark Milly is right or the Ukrainians are right, or potentially even whether the Russians can make anything out of their mobilized men, right? Like in, in a month, we, you think we'll know a lot more than we know now, or maybe two months.
1: In In about a month, we'll be firmly into winter. And so we will start to see whether Ukraine's theory of its own victory is correct. Ukraine is confident that, that winter will favor it more than Russia because of its discipline and its motivation.
0: Yeah. Okay. So uh, we should move on to um, that's what's going on now. We wanted to talk about um, how this thing ends so i think we should talk about uh ukrainian uh victory what a russian victory or victory of sorts will look like and then sort of a a stalemate i want to just go through there so give me the case for how ukraine how ukraine uh wins in the next i don't know whatever time frame you want just just give me the optimistic scenario
1: so okay optimistic scenario from ukraine's perspective it's correct that winter favors it more uh it Breaks through Svatova and Kremina within the next couple months, and after that, it sweeps up all of this territory, Mohansk all the way up to Starobilsk, like I've been talking about. Uh It successfully defends and holds off Russia's assaults in Donetsk, uh, and what's more, it successfully continues to pressure Russia so much that Russia keeps sending mobilized men to to, to attack. In Donetsk too early and so Ukraine keeps getting to chew them up and spit them back out and and Russia in its desperate effort to keep up the momentum keeps sacrificing more and more lives instead of taking the time to really train and assemble its mobilized men into a fighting force. Uh, best scenario for Ukraine? Part of its theory of victory? Maybe at some point it seizes an opportunity to uh, launch an Counteroffensive in Zaporizhia and it drives to the to the coast and cuts Russian territory in Ukraine into two. And after that happens, it's simple for it to sweep up the remaining Russian territory in the south and even Crimea. Uh, And so the the great Ukrainian theory of victory during all this, with each victory that Ukraine gains on the ground, the West keeps giving it more and more military aid. And, and the Russian will to fight becomes more broken, and, and Russian civilian resistance becomes stronger, and eventually pressure rises so high on Putin that, that he's forced to concede for at least some token concessions. I, I do not believe in Ukraine's heart of hearts that it really believes that it can force Russia to abandon every inch of Ukrainian territory. That seems like a little too much for anybody to genuinely believe.
0: Yeah. But I mean, could it? I mean, so, you know, I mean, the Russians seem to have bad morale. It seems to be getting worse. I mean, you you uh if you watch the um the videos from Russian TV on Twitter, um, you know, it's like they're so I mean, I don't know how they continue this war effort. I mean, they're all so pessimistic. They're all like we're losers, you know, everything's going terrible direction. They seem to know this. We haven't seen them fight like, you know, we saw the how much Ukraine fought for uh, Mariupol. We haven't seen them hold out and like do urban warfare anywhere. Um, you know, if Ukraine starts just to go on the offensive, I mean, is it possible, given the, it's just because we're talking, we're doing this exercise. We're talking about what Ukrainian victory would look like, and we might as well go all the way. You know, is it possible that the whole thing just sort of collapses just because there there's no morale and you know things are more rotten than it seems, and that's all just being covered up by the muddy season?
1: This is a theory we could think of. I mean, so so realistically, even at the best uh, during winter, Ukraine could not possibly take all the territory Russia controls. I mean, even in the absolute best possible case during the next few months, Ukraine might take, you know, maybe a third of the territory Russia still controls. And then the muddy season, then the the next muddy season will hit where winter turns to fall and things will slow down then. And that will give Russia, that will buy Russia more time to build up more defenses and finish the training for more mobilized men. And so at that stage... You know, even under the best conditions for Ukraine, Russia is going to reinforce some of this Starobielsk line in Luhansk and, and reinforce whatever other regions it still controls. And so, uh. even under the best case for Ukraine, I, I don't see any scenario within the next few months where it just breaks Russia and send, sends all of its troops running back to the border.
0: Mm. Yeah, maybe not in the next few months, but you know, who knows? Who knows how sustainable. You know, Basically,
1: I, I can't. I can't even really pretend to see beyond the next muddy season.
0: No. Okay, so that's part of the uh, that's part of the disclaimer here. You're you're thinking of just a few months, uh, tops, because who knows what's going to happen. Ukraine. I mean, could uh, the Crimea thing? If they say they wanted to, there's only like one road to get to Crimea, right? It seems to me that there's only one road. It seems to me this would be. Uh, very difficult you need either a navy or you need just uh you just there's just one place you can go right i mean there's not a lot of ways to get there right
1: well yeah there's kind of driving south through Zaporizhia, going through uh how do you pronounce it melitopol Melitopol.
0: Uh okay so you can do this so i see okay there's more than one i see i see uh a few a few roads the melitopol road that'll that'll take you to crimea okay these are all i mean this, that's all land that's all a land that's all a uh...
1: you know it, it would be it would be probably the most devastating thing that could happen for russia would be for ukraine to launch a successful offensive south in zaporizhia i mean if it did that then it could cut off all the remaining southern territory that russia controls russia would lose so much and that's why i think I mean, that tactical situation is is obvious to Russia. And so it has strong defenses here. It, it'll probably, I mean, many of the troops that it withdrew from Kherson is, is probably positioning them right here to stop that development. Mm. Yeah. If anything, I think Russia is, r- Russia perhaps is more likely to go on the offensive here. Uh, some of the more intense fighting that we have seen rumors of in the last couple of weeks is actually this tiny town. Let me try to locate it. Uh, it's called like Pavlivka. Oh, right here, Pavlivka. You know, you have to zoom in pretty far in the map to even find this town. But mm. this is where a lot of the fighting has been reported to have been happening. Some of the bloodiest fighting uh, where Russia has been on the attack. And so it's kind of interesting when you zoom out and see like, why this little town? Why has this been the center of Russia's assault for the last couple of weeks? So we zoom out, we lose it, but it's right here. Uh-huh. Uh and I, and I think that maybe maybe one thing that's going on first of all you have to consider the rail supply line so as we talked about last time there's really only one reliable railroad running through here uh and Russia can't make great use of it right now because it's too close to the front uh you know they they had the rail rail line running through the Kerch bridge uh that has been damaged and activity has been tamped down there, and it'll take a while to repair it. And they can't fully really use this rail line because it's in the range of Ukrainian art- artillery. Mm. And so the attacks, like, in this region, I think the significance, significance of them, Russia wants to snap up this territory. One reason it wants to snap up this territory is that if it does, it gains the use of this rail line. Uh-huh which is crucial to the su- supplying this this region. And second, potentially, if Russia places the pressure on Ukraine in this Zaporizhia kind of region, between Zaporizhia and Z- Donetsk, uh, potentially that could lower the possibility of Ukraine launching its own offensive in this region. Ru- I think maybe Russia has decided it doesn't want to be on the defensive here. Maybe it wants to go on the offensive.
0: Yeah, so good a good defense is a... Uh, best defense is a good offense. Um, okay, so that's that's sort of the Ukrainian thing. I mean, if it did, could it? I mean, could it do something where it takes this territory of the south and then it, ha- you know, it can shut Crimea. Can it, you know, because uh, the Crimea is connected by a bridge, right? And that's the bridge that was damaged in that attack all those months ago. Did you did you find out? Did they the the did they put it in? That was that guy. Did they put it in there without his knowledge? Did we have reporting on what was uh, how that worked that uh, the Kerch uh, the uh, Kerch Strait uh, attack? I'm not sure
1: what you're asking about. So remember that guy with the truck bomb?
0: Yeah, yeah. Did we get reporting on whether that guy like was just t- did he know what was happening? I have no idea. Yeah. Okay. So c- could Ukraine potentially uh, is there anywhere it could get where the high mars could reach the 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 bridge between Crimea and mainland Russia? And could it shut Crimea off, or is it just too impossible because Crimea is? I mean, uh,
1: you're talking about HIMARS reaching the Kerch Bridge. Yeah, yeah. But that that can't happen without attackers.
0: Without what? Without attackers,
1: okay, uh, the, the uh, short range ballistic missile that that so HIMARS like, that I, we so have we, not been given to Ukraine.
0: So Crimea is safe, I suppose, because it can always be supplied from the from the mainland, right? That's um, that that's the that's the. That's the uh that's the situation in crimea and that's why stuff so the u.s gave ukraine uh the actums they could potentially maybe hit more things i mean they could they could probably start they could probably hit crimea other places in crimea if they take They
1: could them. i mean you know they, they keep asking for it uh i think we still haven't given it now i will say this i have to look into this more but uh in the latest in the latest aid package we gave them there were some remarks that biden made there there was there was a little bit of talk about us giving them access to some kind of missile that had a range of it was something like 160 kilometers, uh, which is almost twice the range of, of the Gimmers missiles High Mars is firing. I have to look into that more. Uh what, whatever it is, if there's any truth to that, the US being tight-lipped about what exactly we're giving them.
0: Mm. But
1: but there are starting to be be rumors that we're giving them something that has a bit. Longer range than Heimar's uh, typical missiles.
0: Okay. So, okay. So, we talked about the Ukraine, uh, the optimistic scenario for Ukraine. Uh, what's the optimistic scenario for Russia?
1: Optimistic scenario for Russia. So, first of all, uh, it's that Ukraine doesn't make significant progress during winter, that, that Russia's soldiers hold up well enough, uh, and that winter is I think the reasonable best case for Russia is that winter is mostly a stalemate uh, because it's still got this large wave of mobilized men, you know, maybe you're in the neighborhood of 200,000 of them that are still in training. And so I, I think the best case for Russia is that it holds out through winter uh, and large waves of mobilized men hit and then they make a real difference going on the offensive in say Donetsk, and let's focus on Donetsk uh, because I think the indications are that that is what Russia is hoping to gain. Uh-huh. So the realistic best case for Russia, I think, is that it succeeds in that it holds out through winter. Its uh, mobilized men hit a couple hundred thousand of them, trained, and and it manages to take most or all of the remainder of Donetsk, holding basically all of Luhansk. Uh, and meanwhile, it's used Iranian drones and ballistic missiles to step up the pressure on Ukraine's infrastructure. And, uh, you can also hope that winter is cold, uh, for, for most of Europe and, and that Europe really feels the sting and that, and that the casualties rise so high that the Western voices urging Ukraine to negotiate keep Becoming louder, and and Russia's hope is that Ukraine runs out of victories to to keep showing its Western backers. You know, right now Ukrainians. Every time Ukraine gets a big victory, it takes that to the Western backers and says, "Look, look at what you've look at what we've accomplished with yeah. what you've given us. Here's how much more we could accomplish if you give yeah. us even more." Uh, Russia will hope to deny Ukraine the ability to say that to stop its momentum. And if it blunts Ukraine's momentum, then the spigot of military aid starts to get a a, a bit drier. And and then the the momentum starts to shift even more.
0: Yeah. How,
1: I mean, how,
0: I I just don't, I mean, I just don't see it. I mean, it's not that expensive with how much they're supporting Ukraine, given the, uh, uh, you know, it's not like their Western countries are spending all of their GDP on Ukraine um the economic damage is much worse that they've suffered already than you know the direct cost of military aid so why would I mean why would anyone think that the westerners are going to stop supporting ukraine it just seems to me at least america very highly unlikely
1: i think the main reason to think it is just that existing voices in favor of it i mean you you could argue that you see the beginnings of a trend with some republican voices like kevin mccarthy having talked about how they they might potentially start cutting back on. Yeah. I don't, I don't
0: see that as, yeah, I I don't, I don't think that that's very serious. I mean, the the truth
1: is the truth is like, you're right. Like we can say, Oh, we've given billions and billions to Ukraine, but I mean, we're the United States of America, like Biden waves his hand and like spends 400 billion on on student loans or something, even though it's not actually happening as of right now, but you know, when you look at the scale of the programs we pass for for ourselves, like 19 billion in military aid, is kind of a rounding error. Yeah, that's error.
0: what I'm that's what I'm saying. This is a this is a very small, you know, not a very costly operation given how important the U.S. apparently considers it.
1: And not only is not only is it a rounding error, but I think we have to be a bit more cynical than people allow themselves to publicly be on this topic to really understand the U.S. interest. It's not even that. The aid is a small amount. It's that pragmatically the military aid is a great investment for us. We buy those rockets, imagining them being used by American soldiers to kill Russians. Instead, they kill Russians with no American soldiers dying. I mean, the truth is, it's a kind of a good bargain for the United States, this proxy war.
0: I mean, depending on the global, you know, impact, it depends on what you're you know what your goals are if you care about maximizing gdp right the health of the global economy maybe not if you're scared of russia you know if you if you just want to weaken russia then then yeah it's a good investment right it's uh it's not that clear depending on exactly what what you want so biden i mean the military might be the foreign policy establishment might be one way and biden might have a broader view have a more view about a humanitarian view or an economic view and you know think something different
1: maybe you know, another consideration is oil prices. Uh, you know, the end of the war, one of the main ways that would probably benefit the global economy is is uh, to release uh, some pressure on oil prices so that the gas price could come down. Uh, I think that the midterms being passed now makes uh, gasoline prices a little bit less of a factor in Biden's thinking, probably. Mm. Yeah, although
0: 2024 is right around the corner uh the um you know uh so uh anatoly Karlin on twitter was talking about how what a joke it was that russia was only spending uh you know five percent of its gdp on the military during this conflict is there you know a potential bigger mobilization that russia can do down the line a complete war economy uh you know a general draft it seems like they are you know they're still fighting in a very you know as like this is you know like this is the conflict in georgia like this is doesn't mean that much to them. Um, but it seems like, you know, this, it seems like that, uh, you know, it seems like it's, it, it, to, you know, what they say and sort of what they're doing don't seem to match. They talk about this as like, you know, a, a great conflict that, you know, they're defending Russian territory and then they're only spending 5% of GDP on uh, the military. Um, you know, is, is there potential for Russia to, you know, double or triple that and then maybe make it, maybe uh, give themselves a, a way to go, go on the offensive?
1: I suppose it's a theoretical possibility. I'm not sure it's a practical possibility because, look, we're we're already seeing rising Russian civilian uh, resistance to the war, rising public criticism. I I mean, uh, after the retreat from Kherson, we're starting to see more and more personal criticism of Putin himself.
0: But you see criticism from the other direction too. You see criticism that they're not aggressive enough in fighting this war, and they're not asking for enough, you know, sacrifice.
1: Yeah, but you know, personally, just when I kind of process all of the reports that I see of the Russian attitude, I think we are reaching the point where where a lot of the mobilized men have started dying already, and so the the punch of that is starting to land you know, to the friends and family of those mobilized men. And I think that that is only going to increase. So in theory, Russia could potentially mobilize more people. I don't, I I think that for Russia to really justify that to its populace, it has to be able to show that it's not just sending them into the meat grinder. Uh, it, It has to show concrete evidence that it's making gains through these mobilizations. Yeah. It has to justify them.
0: Yeah, and there's no switch. You could, there's no switch you could flip to guarantee guarantee that because they don't have superior weaponry, right? So it's like, what can they do, right? It, it's not. A, it doesn't seem like there's a uh, there's a way to guarantee that for yeah. or, you know for the population.
1: Yeah, and so we were talking about best case, best realistic case for Russia. I, I think uh, one important factor will be the quantity of Iranian aid. Uh, And this is up for debate right now. You know, as reports came out in the media that Iran was starting to send a lot of short-range ballistic missiles and more drones to Russia, uh, Iran started coming out saying, no, no, we're not. It's not a big deal. We sent them some stuff, but that was before the war started. You know, it's largely cut off from much of the world economy. But I suppose not entirely cut off because Iran seems to be feeling the the, the public pressure not to substantially aid Russia. Uh, somehow, the West must still have some economic leverage left over it.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's also there's always you know the the Chinese aid. I mean, who knows if that'll ever come? But that doesn't. Ch- China has
1: shown no inclinations of, of wanting yeah, to send that- military aid to Russia. Uh, yeah, China seems the... to be moving more and more in the direction of distancing itself from Russia. Uh, I mean, it, it's been making more public statements. Uh, Xi Jinping just made his joint statement with Biden, uh, you know, no nukes in Ukraine and no threats of nukes either. Yeah. And we okay. have, by the way, we have seen Russia backing down from all these nuclear threats over the last several yeah, years. Yeah,
0: that's yeah, that's right. So do, I mean do you see like you know so it's like okay so the, I was going to ask you what's the you know after the Russia uh after best case for Russia I was going to ask you what's the case for a stalemate but it seems like that's the same thing it seems like you think the best case for Russia is is the stalemate
1: Yeah I, I think the best case for Russia begins at least with a stalemate a stalemate over the next few months and then its hope is that after Russia creates a stalemate then it, it blunts Ukraine's momentum. When it blunts Ukraine's momentum, Ukraine can no longer justify getting increased military aid from the West. And as that decreases, Western pressure diplomatically on Ukraine increases to negotiate. Uh, and with the combination of those and then m- the mobilized men hitting for Russia in a couple months, it could hope potentially to make some advances on the battlefield, especially taking Donetsk. I think that's what russia is hoping for uh-huh still yeah. in the short term advances in a couple months after mobilization really pays off yeah and at and some if, you, if iran helps it helps to arm it especially
0: yeah and you know at some point i guess so at some point there'll have to be a peace deal let's say there is you know there's it's going to depend so it's going to depend on how much ukraine can actually take back what it could actually gain on the battlefield whether russia could take anything. Um, what do you know? What do the outlines of a deal look like? I think so. I think from what I see, it has to, you know, it's like it's very, it's very, uh, it's very strange. I mean, it's just very strange that Russia annexed Kherson and now does not have Kherson, obviously, um, and does not have like, you know, it, it never gave the, uh, it never get, you know, it, it allowed an out for itself that it never. Um, uh, said what the borders were of these regions, uh, so it could still say, you know, we have Kherson, and we just call, consider Kherson, you know, the east side of the Nipper River, and they can call we You can say we consider Zaporizhia just whatever we hold, and we consider Donetsk and Luhansk, right? Uh, and so, you know, I think there, you know, it would have to have like at least one inch of like each of those four territories uh, to um, to uh, sign any kind of peace deal. Right. But there's no I mean, how does Russia how does Russia sign a peace deal that doesn't have it? You know, how does it how does it, you know, we talk about Ukraine, whether it's signed peace well, how would Russia sign something that gives up part of its territory? Is that, is that just the you know, how, how does it how does it do this?
1: I think Russia can always rewrite the narrative to to favor the facts on the ground as far as BR goes. I mean, look, if it if it loses more of the Kursan region, it can always If it comes to it, you can always sign a deal saying, look, look at what we got. We went into this war wanting the Donbass. We've got the Donbass. And and we still have Crimea. Uh, we've won. It could always say that.
0: Yeah. So they have a sort of unlimited sort of uh ability, but uh, but to shape the air. But if that's true couldn't they have like we just said that they can't like just brainwash the people to do a to, to have a total war and like invest you know the uh, like a huge you know uh, sums of money and treasure uh but they it seems like they can just sort of it seems like you think that there's pressure coming from one side there's a pressure towards peace coming from within uh Russia but there's not pressure for uh more aggressive action Look,
1: there are always going to be hardliners who say no uh Kursan was russian territory we cannot sign a, a, a treaty giving russian territory to the ukrainians and there will be those voices but i think the the facts on the ground can successfully drown out those voices if it's just not possible for russia to take those territories
0: yeah so you're, yeah so you're saying that these people will sort of uh you know, so I mean, because like you could, I mean, you could tell a difference city You could tell a different story where, like, the more they lose, the more the hardliners get empowered, the more cornered Russia feels, the more it wants to, you know, the more the people who just want to go total war and you know start uh, doing all kinds of crazy things. But I guess, I guess, I, w- I guess, one reason to think that that's probably not going to happen is because of the sort of the trajectory of it. Like you would have thought, maybe uh, Russia, if losing territory, maybe it would become more serious in its nuclear threats. But we've seen the opposite. As it's as it's gotten weaker, it's it's uh you know, its its bark has, has uh has you know, the the uh the sound of its bark has decreased, right? Yeah. Um so it seems like that we are on a trajectory towards Russia becoming less ambitious. It's so stupid because, like, their, the peak of their ambition was when they annexed those four territories, which was like, you know, they were on the downslope the down of their, like, uh, of their military success, right? They had already lost a bunch of territory. And then, like, that was, like, the peak of their ambition. And it seems like since then, they've been uh, scaling back their ambition to more closely match the battlefield
1: realities. That's true. And I think that you could kind of actually use that as part of the narrative of the best case for Russia. Part of the narrative of the best case for Russia would be that it's been starting to make some sounder strategic and tactical decisions, uh, like this withdrawal from Kherson, which apparently happened in fairly good order. Uh, As part of the positive case for Russia, you could say, look, they're starting to fight smarter. They're starting to be more realistic in aligning their political goals with their military capabilities. And if they do really limit their ambitions, to taking all of Donetsk, and and they they funnel all their mobilized men toward that, and they funnel a lot of these uh withdrawn troops from Kherson to that. You could make the case that Russia could have success in achieving its scaled back ambitions.
0: Yeah, and, and does okay. So you could you could do. I mean, if you get any territory internationally recognized, right? I mean, that could be sold as a victory, right? That's like it's like a you know utility function where it's just like total land like land gain like over the course of the war and whatever you know you're in the black you could you could be happy i guess
1: yeah I, I do not think that russia is limited by its annexation announcements to what it can ultimately accept in a treaty I, I don't think it's going to be like, oh, no, we can't sign this treaty because we annexed Curson. Is it just, I said it just
0: so I – mean, but is that like – I mean I, does – do the words that the government says in their ceremonies, do they have no meaning at all in like the grander politics? Like could they just say you know we annexed Washington, D.C. and like it's part of Russia and then like forget that it never – I mean they had a signing ceremony. I watched it. They had a big speech. They had all these dignitaries. It, it was it, supposed to be a big deal. It.
1: It can be forgotten if it's in most people's interests for it to be forgotten.
0: Yeah, like could the U.S. just like forget? Uh, I guess we could. I mean, we could. We could forget Afghanistan. We could forget Iraq. We could. I mean, we couldn't forget like that. You know, Florida is like part of America or, or something. But I think we could. I think yeah. Maybe 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 you're right. Um, yeah. Okay. And
1: uh, I think that uh, as far as what Russia will get at the end of this, I've been saying from the beginning that I think the concession, one of the first concessions on the table would be Crimea. Uh, And I think several months ago, back when the two sides were at the negotiating table, that's one of the things that Ukraine itself was talking about. It was talking about some kind of deal that would essentially, in all but name, leave Crimea in Russian control. And I I think that that's, that's probably... What's going to end up happening in in a deal ukraine has been saying a lot of talk lately in the news about how it's going to assault this territory and take it and that's part of the role that this uh this offensive in the kenburn split plays it it makes credible the ukrainian threat to take Crimea. i think ultimately this is kind of a negotiating play ultimately like oh we're going to take crimea we're going to take crimea they say that so it can be a major concession they can give up Mm -hmm. at least some of them may be thinking that way. Probably yeah. others are sincere in saying, no, we're going to take everything from Russia. Uh-huh.
0: What is the... Um, okay, so uh, what's... I mean, what is the minimum that Ukraine could could give up? So Crimea, we said... I mean, could Ukraine give up... Could Ukraine give up, like, Mariupol? Could it give up uh, You know, Zap, the parts of Zaporizhia if Russia holds, holds off? I mean, is that something you see as realistic?
1: So in, in Zaporizhia one thing of significance is uh the nuclear power plant you know very large nuclear power plant there i think ukraine will want to end up with that no matter what
0: Uh uh-huh uh
1: but that's i think relatively close to the to the yeah there's a
0: danger in trying to take that though for you know and
1: so in, in any kind of negotiations perhaps perhaps one of the one of the concessions russia could make to ukraine is that it gives Ukraine back some of this territory up to, including the nuclear power plant there. I think Ukraine will want that, no matter what. Yeah. Uh, Now, Mariupol? Yeah, could they give up
0: Mariupol? Yeah, Melitopol, Mariupol, could they give that up?
1: I I think it would be a pretty tough pill for Ukraine to swallow, giving up either of those. Uh, And I think it would do that very begrudgingly, I, I think it's pretty unlikely that Ukraine would want to give up either of those major cities.
0: Yeah, so we have to. I mean, there has to. So the fighting, at least, could they get uh, and Donetsk and Luhansk? I guess that's in between. You think probably that at least those cities they could give up or or uh, not?
1: Potentially, I mean, you know. Potentially, Ukraine. I mean, certainly, like Luhansk over here. You know, much of the much of the area in the Donbas close to the Russian border. I mean. In whatever deal eventually materializes, some significant amount of the Donbass will end up remaining under Russian control, I believe.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. And how I mean, how do we get but how do we get to negotiation sort of from here? Because each side sounds absolutist uh right now. Um I don't know if, like, you know, are we in the West? Yeah, we, you know, who knows about Russia politics? But are are we in the West? Are we capable? Is Ukraine capable of negotiations? I mean, this is a recurring thing with Zelensky. Didn't Zelensky want, you know, a little bit more of a accommodationist policy, and he was pushed into uh, being a little more hawkish by the hardliners uh, before the war? Um, isn't this like, you know, isn't that a much bigger problem now? Like, you know, it's just hard for me to see, imagine the sort of the breakthrough of them them sitting down and talking this out.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think Ukraine in general, the Ukrainian higher ups seem fairly unwilling to negotiate. And so I think the United States, we see the signs that United, the United States behind the scenes and increasingly in public is starting to nudge Ukraine saying, hey, you know, basically we, we seem to be starting to tell Ukraine, don't take advantage of us. Don't think that we're giving you a blank check and that we're just going to fund you uh, to to attack Russia for decades with you you making no concessions. Mm. Uh, We seem to be starting to send Ukraine that message. Uh, And I think for Ukraine, a, a lot of this comes down to whether its theory of victory can hold up during the winter. If Ukraine is correct that it can make territorial gains during the winter, then it probably ends up, it can keep playing essentially. Uh, it it can keep going. Uh, we give it more. But if Ukraine is incorrect and it can't, and it's a stalemate during the winter, then uh then probably the pressure rises and and, and we start telling them it's not a blank check. You know, you, you you've got to be willing. You can't keep saying these things like Putin has to be overthrown and all Russian boots have to leave every inch of Ukrainian territory. And you know, this is something where you and I might agree on this. You know, I, I think that a lot of the pro-Ukrainian commentators in the West—they've fallen into a bit of cheerleading. They—they uh, they, they take this kind of moral view that we have no moral right to to tell Ukraine it has to come to the negotiating table at any point. Uh, and so there's this there's this one phrase that's that's been making the round for months that expresses the cheerleading side. It's the phrase where people like to say something like, if Russia leaves Ukraine tomorrow, if Russia stops fighting, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. Mm -hmm. And everybody says that like it's this very telling point, this irrefutable argument, uh, an argument supporting the side that there should be no pressure on Ukraine to negotiate. Mm. And to me, it just sounds like cheerleading. I mean, of course, if Russia, st- of course, it's literally true, but what does it actually prove? I mean, yeah, of course, I think that Russia is the one who started the fight, but you can't just kind of like have this childlike insistence. Russia started it. It's on Russia to end it. It's not on us to end it. I mean, that that's kind of playground reasoning.
0: Right. When, but, the question, but the question is whether that has relevance, right? Whether American leaders and Ukrainian leaders are thinking sort of along those lines, in which case this could be a, a very long war, right?
1: And I think that at some point, I think the West is not going to allow this to turn into a, a new World War I. I, I think when if it becomes a stalemate and it's just trench warfare, <laughs> and imagine this, hundreds of thousands people of, of people on both sides dying going forward you know suppose we reach the point are we going to allow it to come to the point where there's more than a million dead soldiers. I mean, what are we? What are,
0: what are we in America? I mean, we're American, I mean, we don't care about the casualty so far. I mean, I don't know why that would pressure us. That would be a, a you know question for Russia and Ukraine. I don't think like an order of magnitude more deaths in like Ukraine is going to like. It's like you know you would you might have thought that like now we've had tens of thousands. I don't know what the casualties are. We could have thought that we oh we we wouldn't have let that happen. I don't know why we couldn't let hundreds of thousands. I don't see what the what the limiting factor is here.
1: Well, there's there's a couple things. First of all. There's our interest in, in the, the oil situation. Uh, you know, our, our interest in peace is connected to our interest in the global energy supply. Secondly, there's the fact that our supplies of ammunition are running perilously low, and we don't really want to step up production. At the same, same time, we're looking at Taiwan and we're looking at China and thinking, you know, we're going to need that ammo if any action there comes up so we cannot really at our current uh current stores we cannot keep up this pace of of aid we only have so much high mars ammo mm-hmm. uh and, well, why can't and why, also why, well, the well, money. why can't
0: but, but yeah it costs money but why can't we just i mean we we said it's not that much why don't we just invest more in ammo and you know we could uh you know china taiwan china you know, who knows if that will if that will we'll actually see that war as far as like the energy stuff you could imagine global supplies like you know adjusting around the reality of the war right you can imagine there's there's stuff you know always in the works the market adjusts you know tends the markets tend to adjust very well towards these kind of things so maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't hurt that much I'm, i guess i'm giving the case for the war going on forever right there, there's also
1: but, our humanitarian interest i mean like set aside our cynical self-interest like what is what is our interest in seeing tens and hundreds of thousands more ukrainians civilians and soldiers dying if there's no progress on the ground, I
0: I think that I don't think.
1: Look, what was our interest in? I mean, we
0: could have we could have said, we could have told Ukraine before the war. We could have done a more serious negotiation. If we care of so much about humanitarian, I mean, we should. I think we should would have done a lot of things differently. I think we would have tried harder to avoid the war. I think we could have. Uh, argued for concessions that like are going to end up being the peace deal probably like you know give up donetsk and luhansk whatever the russians have and crimea and no nato like if we were really humanitarians i mean i think we would have done that but you know apparently we didn't
1: i Um, mean we were wrong about a lot before the war started uh but it's just i I don't see the i don't see the
0: you know i don't see humanitarian suffering of ukraine being a major it is in the sense that it drives anger and hatred towards the russians i do see that but i don't see like a cool rational consideration of how to reduce the suffering of ukrainians being like you know for uh you know at the forefront of our thinking
1: you know at, at some point all these costs start to add up the, the the cost of the aid we give them sure it's not that much so far but do we really have an interest in sending them you know, 20, 30, 40 billion a year indefinitely when all it's producing is more dead on both sides, more devastation, and the, and the front lines are staying the same? Put it, put it, put this, this, put it this way.
0: We spent 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq. We spent trillions, and those were American wars directly. But like the public, especially after the first two years, wasn't paying that close attention to any of those wars. So these wars were not as important to us as ukraine is just given how much attention we give them and we were willing to spend orders of magnitude more than you know a couple uh, you know 20 30 billion a year on afghanistan and iraq so if it's harder to end the ukraine uh, support for ukraine just because ukraine is like more of a uh, more of a sort of a uh, you know a, a standard of like something that everyone in america supports like if we could do afghanistan and iraq for 20 years and spend all that money why can't we do ukraine uh, you know a fraction of that
1: what do we get out of it
0: if Nothing. Not what did we get out of Afghanistan and Iraq? It's like they just, people think it cares. People just read the paper and they care about Ukraine and they want to cheerlead Ukraine for the same reason we wanted to, you know, we win in Afghanistan and Iraq. I don't know what we got. I, I don't know what we would have got even if we won. I don't think we would have got I much. Mean, if,
1: if, if you look at polls of, of public American support for aid to Ukraine, isn't there already a kind, a, a kind of discernible trend of decreasing support? In our well, the,
0: I mean, the Afghanistan war went on for like a decade after it was pretty unpopular. I mean, so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, there could be, yeah. <laughs> but still, you know, just my, my, my benchmark is like, like the taboo on like not supporting Ukraine anymore seems to me to be much stronger than the taboo was, say, 10 15, 10, 15 years ago of pulling out of Iraq or Afghanistan. There were more voices able to call for that than there are people saying, don't support Ukraine anymore. And so that makes me think it's, you know, subjectively, you're asking, what do we get out of any of this? Like, who knows? But subjectively, it's more important to us. And so I think we could support, I I, I tend to think we could just provide that support, definitely.
1: I mean, our wallets are capable of continuing to indefinitely send, you know, 20, 30 billion a year I mean, even more to Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, the American economy can support that. Yeah. But it, I just look at the existing trends. That that's part of what's informing me. I'm looking at the trends of of what the U.S. is starting to do, and the U.S. is starting to become increasingly public in telling Ukraine that, w- yeah. that we aren't willing to give them a blank check indefinitely.
0: Yeah. And oh, it's goodness.
1: not it's not any one particular party in the U.S. either. We've seen. S- incipient signs of it in the republican party we see hints of it cropping up in the biden administration
0: yeah yeah you you're you might you might be you might be right there's a um yeah it's like it's, you know these things have a sort of a mass psychology to them right and like we don't even know like you know imagine it's like you know i think even like even if the biden administration thinks that it wants a negotiation like i don't know if it itself has a good sense of what the uh you know what the what it actually looks like what the pressures actually are when the rubber hits the road so like you know when's a good time to negotiate okay when russia makes an advance no that's that's dangerous we have to we have to stand up to them when ukraine makes an advance no like we're pulling the rug from under them they're you know just when they're making advances where so it's actually it's they may want this in in the abstract to find some kind of peace deal but practicality it's hard these things have a way of just dragging on
1: so i I would say that the time to negotiate is not now. Yeah, it's not now because Ukraine has the momentum now, and so Ukraine should continue to see how far its current momentum can take it. Uh, it, it a lot of the stuff in this war reminds me of this this old saying that people attribute to Lenin: uh, "Push with a bayonet. Push the enemy with a bayonet. If, if you hit flesh, keep going. Yeah. If you hit steel, stop." Yeah, and and I think that the Ukrainians. All they're hitting is flesh so far. Yeah. So you need to keep going.
0: Yeah. So you, okay. So I think we agree that as long as, you know, the lines are moving, as long as there's some movement, peace is hard. A stalemate is the best thing for achieving peace, right? Is, yeah. is it, is the, this, this
1: goes back to the thing I was saying about how political considerations. Have been playing such a large role in the strategic decisions on both sides here in this war. Uh, We've seen and talked about how Russian political considerations have dictated where they attack and where they retreat. And with Ukrainians, there's this bargain. They know that basically the Ukrainians, through their actions, have made it clear that they believe they need to keep advancing. They need to keep winning victories that they can take to the West in order to get continued military aid from the West. Uh that's one reason why at the beginning of the Curse on offensive, Ukraine was losing a lot of lives. Uh I think Ukraine lost more men than it needed to at the beginning of the Curse on offensive. Uh, because ultimately the strategy that won it, the battle, was not advancing, right? Mm. The strategy that won it most of this was the strangulation strategy. Yeah. But Ukraine did not rely on the strangulation strategy from the beginning. Uh at the beginning in the first couple of months of that battle, it did a lot of advancing and it lost a ton of lives in in those advances. And I think that that was dictated in part by the political considerations where they felt we have to show the West that we're advancing. Mm -hmm. And so that dynamic continues to hold true. And Ukraine is going to continue. I mean, it bought itself a little time with this major victory in Kherson, But my sense of the war so far is that the West is going to start to get impatient if Ukraine doesn't show any significant advances during the during the winter, the next couple months.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I I think I dis- I think I disagree, and I think that especially if there's a Republican in 2024, um, you know, I think that the Republican Party will be much. You you, you think you take the anti-war. Sort of uh noises in the Republican uh, Party a little more seriously than I do. I think the actual uh political people, the people who will be staffing the State Department of Defense, are gonna be extremely hawkish. Um, and I think that holds for Trump, maybe especially for Trump, because there will be so much pressure. Um, you know, uh the, you know, this is the reason why uh Trump gave Ukrainians youth lethal aid in the first place because he was so constrained by politics. He couldn't do anything, he couldn't do anything to be friendlier to Russia. Uh so I think that. I think that yeah, what you're saying makes sense, but I think I am, uh, you know, if we're gonna sort of estimate, I think I'm, I think the war is gonna last longer um, than than you do. I, I think that our, I think the ability of the West, I think the ability or likelihood of the West to sort of impose peace on Ukraine, um, yeah, I, it's difficult for me to see.
1: You know, there, there's also people like Elon Musk. You know, in all these podcasts, yeah. we haven't talked about the, the Musk factor. Uh, but the musk factor the starlink factor is actually somewhat important uh to, to what happens on the ground
0: you think he's going to cut it off and then make you i, I don't i, I, I think
1: what's... that at times musk has cut off starlink already uh-huh uh there have been lots of reports here and there uh of starlink access mysteriously think, mysteriously do you think he disappearing calls, do you, for the ukrainians
0: uh, starlink okay so you think he calls someone and says the ukrainians angered me on twitter uh you think you think you think he does that? I, I don't know. That's I mean, that,
1: what I have seen is that when there, there's a there's a strong correlation, when well Elon maybe Musk maybe is people happy at Ukraine they seem to have an increasing number of starlink troubles
0: maybe that maybe that's when people notice them it's like you're looking for crime and then like it have like people think oh elon musk is fighting with ukraine every you know every uh you know potential snag in the starlink system you start to blame it on that maybe it's a sort of there's well, a bias it
1: doesn't fit with the, the reports that i've seen from the ukrainians themselves i mean i i'm going off of official statements i've seen from ukraine that to me imply that elon musk has been cutting off their starlink as- access at certain times based on his disputes with them uh, and so first of all starlink is critically important to ukraine's ability to advance a lot of what it does is predicated on starlink uh, it- and the high mars have internet can they need internet right is that is that it yeah uh, and it's not not just the high mars but you know ukraine one of the ways that it's been overcoming its quantitative advantage in artillery compared to Russia is through using its artillery very smartly, uh, through, through this network of drones linked up through Starlink to, to guide the guns and do spotting for the guns. Starlink has allowed Ukraine to use its artillery kind of like sniper rifles. Uh, and every time, every time Starlink access cuts off, Ukraine stops advancing. And I don't think that, that Elon Musk is going to allow Ukraine to take Crimea. From everything he said, I, I think that if they if they try to take Crimea, they're gonna do it without Starlink.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't. Yeah, I just I just even the you say that's the report from the Ukraine government, and they could be subject to the same bias. Like maybe the system goes down every so often, right? And then like when Elon Musk is fighting with with Twitter, it's like you fight with your you know power company, and then the power goes off, and you you think it's related, but you know maybe it's not. Maybe the power goes off a lot of times, and it's not necessarily that. Like it's just it's just hard for me to hard for me to see that. I mean, he he has to sort of pick his battles. I mean, he's fighting over the Twitter stuff about like they wanted to censor more on Twitter. Um, you know, he's a very courageous man if he's also willing to uh, uh sort of a uh. uh uh, you know, uh, pushback on Ukraine too. Uh, but the, actually particular,
1: the... the particular exchange I'm thinking of is is when is when uh, Starlink access was cut off. Elon Musk was posting stuff like, "Oh, uh, we don't have enough funding to continue just giving Starlink to them for free." Suddenly, yeah. like all the terminals in Luhansk were cut off, and then I saw this tweet. This tweet from a Ukrainian government official high up who was saying. We will make a deal with Elon Musk, uh, but we need Starlink access to continue while we are negotiating that deal.
0: Yeah. And so, me, I, 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 right?
1: I suspect that he might have he might
0: have he, he doesn't have I don't think he has an interest in actually uh uh I don't think he cared like he wants you know, I don't think he has um you know, I think he just wanted the money. I mean he just didn't want to keep providing for free. Maybe it got worked out, maybe they just they they paid him, right? it's, and, it's
1: not just that. Musk th- this was back at the height of the nuclear tensions. And, and so musk seemed to be strongly implying he was worried that if ukraine never negotiated uh things might escalate to the mm. point of nukes
0: yeah maybe he worries about that but maybe he you know he's forgotten and he's moved on to other things but too. Uh, anyway uh,
1: look in general
0: yeah.
1: i just think i see the signs from various parts uh, of, of society that 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 ukraine does not have a blank check from us indefinitely and Ukraine's own actions are consistent with Ukraine believing that it needs to make battlefield progress to continue getting support. Ukraine oh. seems to believe that.
0: Okay. Okay. So, Chris, I, I defer to you on the war stuff, which I don't know much about. Um, on the politic stuff, we have a we have a difference of uh, opinion, but we'll we'll see what we'll see what happens in the coming. We, I think we could summarize as you think, probably. Maybe, if you know maybe by spring, by summer, we'll start to see sort of the outlines of the end of this, and I think probably not is is that is that our agreement disagreement
1: so so remember what I've said is that as far as what happens on the ground, I can't see much farther than the next muddy season
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, but if I try to look farther, I will say this here's where we seem to dis- disagree if the front lines are frozen and the deaths are accumulating on both sides for the next year, I think that support for Ukraine will dwindle if, if it's, if there's a long stalemate that's bloody for everybody. Uh, and I okay. think that that dwindling would eventually bring it to the negotiating table. Yeah.
0: So I'm not, you know, I don't think it, it, I don't think it's impossible against the negotiating table, but I think Ukraine itself will want to go to the negotiating table before uh, the U.S. and Western Europe cut it off because it's it's you know it's being hurt much more. I I think that the given the sort of the political realities here in the in the West, I think you know there, there's there's enough money and there's enough resources to keep this going. But you know eventually Ukraine is going to have to sit there and think you know you know just going to this meat grinder in like World War One kind of trench situation. How much longer do we want to do that? Right? Ukraine is going to have to eventually figure that out. So I would I would expect that that would Ukraine and Russia would come to an agreement. before 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 uh the pressure came from outside
1: we will see (laughs) okay i I do do think at some point i I think ukraine will not continue to hold the momentum forever it's not going to drive russia all the way back to the border
0: yeah Okay, great. Okay, so I think that's I think that covers it. Chris, is there anything else um you want people to look out for? They're going to look out for the month next month uh when the the ground freezes. Anything else interesting that that people should be looking at?
1: Uh just basically over the next 2 months starting a couple of weeks from now, Ukraine needs to prove its own theory of victory true and it needs to make progress on the ground in Luhansk. Over the next couple months. uh The other thing to look out for is Ukraine ever going to materialize a new counteroffensive somewhere else? I mean, we've seen that Ukraine has the resources to sustain two counteroffensives at a time. So, is it good now that the curse on one is done? Is it going to open up a new one potentially in Zaporizhia? That's mm. the big question.
0: Gotcha. Okay. We'll be looking out for that.
1: All right, Chris, it's been fun,
0: man. Until next time.
1: Yep. Next time.